What's going on? Welcome to the show. Pete Callender here. Thanks so much for hanging out. I appreciate it. News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT. The phone numbers are 704-570-1110 and 1-800-WBT-1110. You can also email Pete at the thepetecalendarshow.com. Uh, you can also get the podcast for free, delivered right to your smartphone or tablet every single day. Three different shows, one each hour, basically. And um, you just go to WBT.com. And you can also get every podcast that BT has. And it's like every show. WBT.com. Alrighty, so uh, the big news, I guess, today, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because I will get flamed for it on social media that this is not a sports talk show. So, uh, and and it's not. Um, although I, I, ha- I will say I have kind of crafted this illusion over the years that, uh, like, I don't know anything about sports. Which I find kind of comical, but it doesn't matter. Point is, uh, point is that uh, the best coverage so far of the big sports news today that Tom Brady is retiring cam- uh, comes out of NBC New York. Headline, Tom Brady, who lost two Super Bowls to the Giants during his legendary 22-year NFL career, retires. And that's true. There's nothing, there is nothing false in that statement. He lost... Two Super Bowls to the <laughs> to the Giants. He beat our Panthers, but uh, yeah. And uh, apparently, I just saw he's going to go back to New England for a one day contract, uh, so he can retire as a Patriot. So, which I think is appropriate. That's cool. I, I I'm a fan of them doing that. I wish they probably they probably should have kept him. You know, he probably could have won another Super Bowl with them. But what do I know, right? I'm just a I'm just a talk show host. Well, so let's get to it. Um, I'm going to talk with Andy Jackson, Dr. Andy Jackson from uh, John Locke Foundation at 1230. I talked to him earlier, so it's a recorded interview, but we'll play that at 1230. We're talking about the redistricting case. I want to start there. I also have the latest on the Madison Cawthorn lawsuit, uh, so we'll get to that as well. Three of the North Carolina Supreme Court justices, three of the seven, have now said they will not step aside from hearing the redistricting case. AP reports that this is a rejection of the requests from lawyers covering both sides of the litigation to recuse themselves. In separate written uh, written orders, Associate Justices Anita Earls, Sam Irvin IV, and Phil Berger Jr. all denied the recusal motions targeting each of them. Okay, so you've got two Democrats and one Republican, Anita Earls, Sam Irvin are the Democrats. Phil Berger is the Republican. All of them had been petitioned to recuse themselves. And on the Supreme Court, uh, it's a it, it's up to each judge. Their decisions likely mean that all seven justices will listen to remote oral arguments beginning tomorrow. These will be uh, online, so I'll be monitoring it as well. Uh, not sure... Yeah, maybe we'll just cover it live. I'll just... No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. But uh, that'll start tomorrow. And um, this is over the congressional and legislative district maps. Okay? You got 14 congressional seats. And because North Carolina picked up a 14th seat, we had 13. But population growth now gave us an extra congressional representative. So they had to uh, redraw all of the maps in a, in, in a way that is you know far more sweeping than... 
It might otherwise be the case because when you, uh, you know, if you got 13 seats and the census comes back and you didn't really grow population enough to get another seat, then you're not going to have to change the maps a whole lot. But when you add a seat, that means you got a lot of growth, but that also means you've got to redraw all of these lines. And so that's what they did. And of course, they were threatened with lawsuits before they even drew the maps. And once they got the maps, the Democrats uh, voted against all of them uh, in order to uh, strengthen their case in the uh, trial where they got to say that it was, uh, you know, passed along party lines. If any Democrats were to have voted for these maps, then they could not have argued that. So they get to argue that it was a party line vote, which it was. Um, And uh, it's not just the congressional seats, but it's also all of the state legislative districts, the House and the Senate. The absence, AP writes, uh, the reporter Gary Robertson, the... uh, Absence of justices from proceedings could have tilted the outcome as to whether lines approved for the next decade will be upheld or struck down. Registered Democrats hold a four to three seat on the uh, court, a four to three seat advantage on the court. Anita Earls and uh, Sam Irvin are Democrats. Phil Berger Jr. is a Republican. Lawyers for Republican legislative leaders had asked for Earls and Irvin to step aside to recuse themselves, and attorneys for the lefty plaintiffs, I describe them as the lefty plaintiffs, the, you don't ever see them described as as leftists, you never see them described like this, they're always described as, at best, it'll be Democrat-leaning, or it'll be progressive, but then they always call them good government groups, <laughs> which is, <laughs> yeah, again, it must be nice to be a Democrat. In, uh, seriously, it, it really must be nice. You just get your narratives and your nomenclature uh, just adopted. Just boom. I call it something, and that's what it is. Media goes right along with it. Anyway, uh, Anita Earls, they asked her to recuse herself because of her previous ties to groups involved with the plaintiffs who sued, as well as her history as a civil rights attorney challenging legislation approved by GOP lawmakers, right? She has sued the General Assembly on this matter, and she's now one of the justices uh, to hear the case. But she she says herself, she can totally be impartial on this. See, she can set all of that as her life's work. She can set aside. She started a law firm, you know, took up the the cause of civil rights activism through that law firm, sued the legislative body over district maps, among other things, uh, and her partner in that firm is now appearing before her. But she can put all of that aside and hear the case fairly and vote for the Democrat position. I mean, maybe. It's possible. We don't know. Three judges on the North Carolina Supreme Court that were asked to recuse themselves all said, no, that's all right. In this redistricting lawsuit, Anita Earls, Democrat, Sam Irvin, Democrat, Phil Berger Jr., Republican, uh, all said, no, they can be they, they can be completely fair and impartial. They're not going to step aside. Irvin said that uh, he failed to see how uh, the court's past or future rulings in the redistricting lawsuit would impact his ability to obtain re-election in the court in November. So he's running for re-election. The other two are not. So he's actually on the ballot. And in the past, when a judge has been on the ballot, they recuse themselves from hearing these cases. But not Sam Irvin. He's going to hear the case because, look, I'm running statewide. Who cares? So this is about redistricting. Okay. Uh, I mean, 
forget the fact that he could, you know, be showered with money for a uh, for a ruling that goes a particular way. But regardless, he's um, he's not going to recuse himself. Phil Berger not recusing himself. His dad is listed as a defendant in the case. And this is like for the folks on the left, this is like, how can you not see this? This is so obviously a conflict of interest. It's listed in the judicial ethics. Like, yes, it is, but it's it's not the same as if like my dad was listed as a defendant because you know he's charged with something or somebody is suing him and I like personally and I am the judge in that case, right? Like that's a different thing than naming the dad as the person who is the head of the Senate. Because that's what he that, that's the reason he's listed. That's it. Because he's the head of the Senate. It's not like it's against him personally. Anyway, uh, so Berger's not going to recuse himself. And he might have, by the way. Like, he might have if one of the other Democrats had. This is the thing that kills me. Like, you guys could have cut a deal here. You've got a 4-3 majority. Everybody could have recused themselves, all three of them, and then it would have been what? 2-2. Two to two. It would have been a 2-2 two, two split, but then you could you, they couldn't risk it. Right. Okay. Well, maybe maybe you do a one for deal. You go burger for earls, and both of them recuse, and then Democrats. You would still keep a majority. Why not do that? No, no. They can all be impartial. Look, um, I can actually believe the two that I've just mentioned, Irvin and Burger. I can I can believe that to some degree. Um, I I I can. I but I also think that they probably should have both. Uh, recuse themselves. But also, Anita Earl should have as well. And she's the most egregious example to me. She is. She's the most egregious. She's she she's into it up to her eyeballs on this case, on, on these matters, on the issue, on redistricting, on animus towards the uh, Republican leadership. I mean, the stuff that she has tweeted out and and put out in statements over the years... No, you can't be impartial. The The GOP is pushing out, every day they've been pushing out, uh, what do they call it, impartial Anita is what they've been calling her. Impartial Earls is what I would have gone with, it's just impartial Earls. But um, anyway, uh, Justice Earls' former law partner on the redistricting case, Allison Riggs, is arguing the redistricting case before Judge Earls. No problem. Riggs and Earls spent years litigating together against the defendants. No problem. She can be impartial. She can put all of that aside. That's totally not a conflict of interest for her. Also not a conflict of interest. Former Attorney General Eric Holder funneling a quarter of a million dollars to get her elected so that she could then be on the court to hear this case that, oh, by the way, they have been funding. No conflict of interest there at all either. I don't know why you guys on the right are all upset about this. I mean, you really like and citing these tweets and this history. That's really undermining our democracy. You're really the threat here to the democracy and the judiciary. I mean, you guys are just like you're trying to bully her uh, into being, you know, I don't know, scared of ruling impartially because otherwise she totally is going to rule against the people that funded her campaign and the people that worked with her and suing the people that are now in front of her. Give me a break. Give me a break. Um, the Republicans are right to point out that the so-called good government groups, 
they're all quiet on this. Oh, they've been banging the drum away on uh, Phil Berger Jr. Oh, absolutely. They've been uh, they've been banging the drum for Berger to recuse himself, but not a peep on Irvin or Earls. And the only time that they might actually mention either of those two is to say that they should not recuse themselves. This is why I don't believe you, folks on the left, and your, quote, good government groups. This is why I don't believe you. It's why people on the right do not believe you when you try to advance these arguments as if they are rooted in a principle. We know they are not. We know they're not. And so now everybody is supplying the same consistent standard. And it, it kind of stinks. It does. It kind of stinks because now, right, everybody just assumes that this is the standard, that no one's going to recuse themselves. So now it just kind of rips it all bare. And now we're just going to engage in the partisan machinations in the redistricting litigation and in all of the gerrymandering debates. You hear a group called the Princeton Gerrymandering Project. I spoke earlier today with Andy Jackson about this group and about the redistricting case. Dr. Andy Jackson, he is the director of the Civitas Center for Public Integrity at the John Locke Foundation. You can read his work at johnlocke.org. Andy, how are you? Welcome back to the show. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And uh, so the first thing I guess we should do is kind of cover some of the, uh, the details of what the redistricting case is about. So sort of at a high level, right, you've got sort of left-wing affiliated groups that have sued over the redistricting maps, and they say these are partisan gerrymanders, which I guess they want the court to determine, the Supreme Court now, state Supreme Court, to determine that's unconstitutional. Is that it in a nutshell? Yeah, in a nutshell, that is it. We we have a pair of lawsuits that were joined together, one over the state maps for the North Carolina General Assembly, and then another one, which is actually a holdover from a 2019 lawsuit over congressional maps. They're brought by two different groups. Uh, they were combined, and they're both being heard tomorrow morning in the North Carolina Supreme Court in oral arguments. So were you surprised there was a lot of fight also uh, over the recusals? There were uh, uh, there are two Democrat judges that the Republicans had tried to get uh, recused off of the uh, hearing the case, and then there's a, a, a Republican judge that the Democrats tried to get recused off of this case, although there was a another Republican judge that, uh, that uh, in a different election-related suit, I guess that was on voter ID. So there's this constant battle of trying to get judges tossed off from hearing these cases. All three of the judges that were challenged, they all said, no, we're going to go ahead and hear the case. We can be objective and we can be fair. Was that surprising to you? Uh, no, it wasn't surprising at all. Um, you know, there, There's these kind of tactical maneuvers that both sides are doing with the recusals. I don't think anybody seriously considered uh, that any of these judges would recuse themselves. And I actually have a piece coming out at, uh, at the John Locke Foundation tomorrow talking about that in more detail. Um, you know, the ID case was a little more uh, surprising, a little more worrisome because they were actually trying to get other justices to throw uh, the two justices, uh, Berger and uh, Beringer. Uh, off the case involuntarily, then that would have probably instituted a constitutional crisis. With this case here in redistricting, they were just asking for voluntary recusals. And uh, as everybody really expected, none of the justices recused themselves. And that's been the tradition that the judges determine for themselves whether they should recuse themselves. And you can argue for or against that method, but that's historically the case. Yes, it is. 
Right. So, um, all right. So, that, so that's sort of the backdrop. So, the case uh, came out of the uh, the lower court, superior court. It bypassed court of appeals. It goes right to the Supreme Court now, and um, the uh, the lower court had three judges, two Demo- or two Republicans rather, one Democrat. They they all issued a unanimous opinion on this, uh, saying that look. We may not like these maps, but this is what the Constitution allows. And so, uh, you know, if you don't like it, change the law, essentially. Uh, But this is not an unconstitutional partisan gerrymander because the Constitution doesn't speak to that. Uh, So now it goes to the uh, uh, to the North Carolina Supreme Court. Oral arguments, as you mentioned, begin tomorrow. Now, in the um, in this case and in a lot of the arguments I've seen in the uh, the ink that has been spilled over the uh, the redistricting and gerrymandering lawsuits, I keep seeing this group pop up called the Princeton Gerrymandering Project. Um, and I guess they're out of the college. Is that correct? They're out of Princeton University. Yes, they are. All right. And so what what's their deal? What's up with them? What well, well, they, they claim to be a, a nonpartisan organization trying to uh, help people create fair maps, whatever definition of fairness uh, you may have. They have their own particular uh, definition of fairness, and they grade uh, all the maps, or at least most of the maps that come out of the various states, you know, the typical grades, A, B, C, D, or no Ds, actually A, B, C, F. Uh, based on uh, how well those districts conform to their definition of what fairness is. Um, And they do have a kind of particular idea about what fairness is. Um, For example, in North Carolina, at the congressional level, um, by their own, uh, supposedly, and and we can put an asterisk by this at this point, uh, uh, analysis, that the range of kind of normal maps in North Carolina range from a 9-5 Republican advantage to a 7-7 even map. So you would expect anything in that normal range would be acceptable. However, uh, in their analysis, they say that uh, a 9-5 map is actually just a C, and a 7-7 map, uh, which because of particular North Carolina geography would be a little unusual, uh, would grant an A. So they, they kind of put their thumb on the scale. And North Carolina is not even the most extreme case of that. All right. So I think we, we should probably uh, kind of define a term because I've heard this uh, used as well, which is political geography. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Well, it, in this context, what it means is uh, a combination of you know how many voters there are and where the voters live. And one of the issues that we have in North Carolina, and there's actually a couple of Duke professors that came out with a study uh, yesterday, um, or actually the day before yesterday, that mentioned this. Um, Democrats in North Carolina tend to be clustered uh, in urban areas, your Charlottes, your Raleigh's, your Durham's, um, whereas Republican voters tend to be more evenly distributed throughout the state. Now, what was, does that mean? When you're drawing single-member districts, uh, it's going to naturally, that distribution of voters are naturally going to cause some of these urban districts, like whichever district we end up in the in the Charlotte area, for example, that Charlotte City District is going to be really, really Democratic. Uh, there's, you know, unless you're really going to essentially gerrymander your way out of this by having, you know, these tentacles coming out of Charlotte into rural areas, you're going to have a highly concentrated Democratic district, whereas in all those outlying areas, the ones that come out of Union counties, uh, Iredell counties, or whatnot, those are going to tend to be Republican by a slightly less amount. 
So that distribution of voters uh, by itself is going to have a major impact on what the numbers are for both congressional districts and state legislative districts. My guest is Andy Jackson. He is the director of the Civitas Center for Public Integrity at the John Locke Foundation. We are discussing the Princeton Gerrymandering Project. They rate maps. They do this uh, in, uh, I guess, of what, about a dozen different uh, states almost around America. And they grade these maps. And then, of course, those grades are used to beat up on uh, elected officials for drawing the maps. They're used in courts as evidence like, hey, they drew this map and it's not uh, a fair map, quote unquote. In North Carolina... Uh, you go over this in one of your posts at the uh, the website johnlock.org, uh, that in North Carolina, you know, we've got certain rules that are actually apply to redistricting, like compactness uh, of the district. You can't split counties, or at least you got to minimize that to the greatest extent possible. you got competitiveness, but then they go into uh, another category that they have essentially constructed, which is the frequency of Democrat wins, which... That is subjective because you're looking at some other metric, whether it's, you know, party affiliation and you actually track the affiliations of uh, of voters as they register. Also, outcomes in previous races. So they track that data. They use that then to sort of reverse engineer and say, well, we need to have a certain number of Democrat districts in order for these maps to be fair. And therein lies the subjectivity that seems like it is foundational right to the to their their scores right right and 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 beyond that they uh further put their thumb on the scale with what they call an aspirational view of fairness um and the aspiration uh, certainly in the context of most states they looked at is uh how does this help democrats win more seats uh to what they consider to be an ar- their arbitrary definition of what a fair level is uh, for North Carolina, an A grade uh, would be a 7-7 congressional district, for example. Now, to be fair, they also uh, say that an 8-6 Republican uh, uh, split would be uh, fair within their A range. But, you know, th- generally speaking, that is not what North Carolina geography, the distribution of voters in North Carolina have. And we also have to remember that North Carolina, we keep hearing North Carolina is a 50-50 state. Um, actually, I've got a piece coming out later today where we're talking about North Carolina is, in fact, not a 50-50 state. Um, it's closer to say North Carolina is a 51-49 or a 52-48 uh, state. Now, that may seem like a small difference, but uh, folks have shown, and if the technically it's called the cube rule, uh, which indicates that when you have a, a relatively small advantage uh, in wins, that translates into a comparatively larger advantage in the number of seats in the legislature. Uh, they don't account for that in the Princeton gerrymandering project. They assume a kind of a 50-50 split, and they don't account for geography in that. So they're, they're kind of imposing this metrics that they have on North Carolina when it really doesn't fit. It's all arbitrary. Also, uh, you came across a report that outlines how up in New Jersey, folks uh, that are affiliated or part of the Princeton Gerrymandering Project, that they've actually been participating or in drawing maps to advantage Democrats? Is that right? Yeah, it's, it's you know, when, I, when they, I first did a report on them, I assumed that there was a portion of what the Princeton Gerrymander, 
Mandarin project was doing was not arbitrary, that they actually just let the math do it. And then they, you know, post hoc put their uh, their views uh, on that result. But now I'm going to have to reconsider that as well, because in this case in New Jersey, they were not just uh, uh, providing data or, or grading maps. They were actually, you know, hand in glove with the redistricting commission, particularly this 13th member who was supposed to be uh, the uh, nonpartisan member. Uh, they had an equal number of Republicans and Democrats on their redistricting commission, and this person was essentially the decider. Well, they worked with the Democrats, the Princeton Gerrymandering Project folks worked with the Democrats to help them draw maps so that their maps would get passed uh, over the Republicans, and those maps benefited uh, the Democrats in that. And so the essentially, the Princeton Gerrymandering uh, project is working hand in glove with Democrats in that state to advantage them in redistricting, which is, as an aside, uh, uh, something we have to consider if people are debating about redistricting commissions in North Carolina, as we periodically have. Right, exactly. This this always, I always cite the California example, but maybe this is mm-hmm. a, a more recent one because the California example is now I guess 20 years old, where they set up their independent redistricting commission. And of course, you had uh, uh, these organizations, people organize activists, and they they gamed the system. They rolled people who had no idea uh, about politics, uh, and but got put onto that commission because that was the criteria. You could literally not have any knowledge of like politics <laughs> or campaigns or anything. If you worked for a campaign, if you ran for an office like you were barred you cannot be on it and then they got rolled by people who made up these organizations claimed to be communities of interest got their lines drawn the way they wanted to and then disappeared into the night and um and it ended up putting you know the entire i want to say it was like almost every single elected official in california then became democrat there's like two republicans i think elected uh in districts so like that to me is sort of the quintessential example of what happens when you try to go down that path i'm not i and i and i'm not confident because i think it's an inherently political process to begin with i don't think you can ever get politics out of redrawing these lines what do you think uh, that that is true and that's going to be one of the things that you're going to hear at least from the defendant side is that redistricting is an inherently political process no matter who's drawing the districts um and it just so happens in north carolina uh article two sections three and five specifically say that it's the legislature that is charged with drawing those districts so politics is going to play out in north carolina constitutionally that politics plays out in the general assembly uh, what the plaintiffs are trying to do here is have the politics play out in the court system, uh, which is really a dangerous intrusion of one branch into the constitutional prerogatives of another branch. And they're trying to tease out an argument that these are not free and fair elections because of the the redistricting, because of where the lines are and because of the majorities that Republicans enjoy based on those district lines and so because the constitution protects free and fair elections therefore there that's the line they're tracing that means that you've got to throw out all these districts and impose what that's the next question right like what is the remedy here if the plaintiffs win do we just have their maps that get adopted because as you wrote about a little while ago that their maps are actually optimized to elect white democrats but not black democrats the republicans have a better map for black democrats yeah. Well, what you have there is, uh, and, and there are different numbers, but generally ex- uh, expected that 
around 37% is what they would call, 37% black would create what they call an opportunity district uh, under the Voting Rights Act. And in North Carolina, we have two now at the congressional level, uh, the one in Charlotte and another one out in rural parts of northeastern North Carolina. Um, what they're doing in those maps, there's not a single congressional district that meets that 37% threshold. What they're essentially doing, uh, because black voters do tend to vote Democratic, um, they are kind of salting those around the district so that you have enough for Democrats to win, but not enough to create uh, opportunity districts for African-Americans on the Voting Rights Act. And essentially the formula there is they're kind of hitting that sweet spot where you're going to elect uh, as many Democrats as you can, uh, considering the geography of the state, that this their map would be an 8-6 or uh, Democratic advantage map. Um, but most of those folks, if not all, would be white Democrats. Now, why would they do that? I mean, there is this old thing about you know environmentalists, and this is being led by the North Carolina League of Conservation Voters. They're the plaintiffs in one of the lawsuits that environmental issues are traditionally kind of a white realm thing. I don't know if that's the case here, or if they it was just an oversight on their part that maybe they just forgot that they need to create a couple of districts that comply with the Voting Rights Act. But, you know, that's the fact of the matter about the districts that they drew. Yeah. We shall see what happens. The trial gets underway tomorrow. Andy Jackson, the director of the Civitas Center for Public Integrity, the John Locke Foundation. Thanks for your time, as always. Appreciate it. All right, and up next, Republicans attacking a justice and democracy by pointing out the conflict that Justice Anita Earls has. That's up next on News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT.